0: All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 93. Tonight, we are going to discuss buy and sell rules. Well, actually, we're going to discuss buy rules. We recently got a great listener email that wanted to chime in on his ideas of some buy rules. Uh, Andrew and I have discussed those several times in the podcast. Episode 32, we discussed buy and sell rules and it was really popular. And then we also uh, touched on those as well with Braden in episode 88. And so we got this great listener email that I mentioned, and we wanted to talk about his buy buy rules. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and read the first buy rule, and then we can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, sure. So
2: obviously super inspiring. I think it's really cool when people who are listening to our stuff take it and run with it. I've said that before. So the first buy rule that Um, this is daniel f first buy rule that daniel um, shared with us is it must score under 250 on vti and must file a readable 10k that demonstrates good finances that indicate i am getting a bargain do you agree or disagree
0: i definitely agree yeah me too that one's easy next Next, must pay a dividend and allow directly reinvestment. A drip Uh, grows as investment. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's got to pay a dividend and it's got to allow direct uh, reinvestment because that's how we grow our wealth. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah. Uh, Can we talk about drip every single episode? I think I would be so excited (laughs) if we did that every single time.
0: We would be because you are the drip king after all.
2: (laughs) I always buy Stocks with paying a dividend, it's how you get compound interest. You need an income in order to reinvest and make that money compound. So, how do you do that? Well, you can buy stocks and get them to drip. And as you do that, whether the stock market goes up, down, or sideways, you're going to be collecting those dividend checks. And if you reinvest them, you are slowly accumulating a greater and greater percentage of a company or a business. Uh, One of the things I shared today on on the Facebook page, I was having some back and forth with with some people on there. Excuse me. And I was trying to explain from a very basic uh, beginner premise what compound interest is and and trying to explain it to somebody who kind of has no idea, like no concept of it because it's one thing for us to say it and, and as Dave and i we've been doing this teaching this for years, right? We've been in the market for a long time as well it It's something that's kind of second knowledge to us. We kind of don't think about it just like you don't think about walking downstairs, but there is a lot that is behind it, and so if we can really kind of highlight exactly what about compound interest is so exciting, then you can get people fired up and they may maybe start buying their own dividend stocks, maybe start investing themselves. And and getting drip because you can have knowledge and, and stuff, and, and this applies to so many things in life. You can have the knowledge and you can have the wisdom, but if you're not excited about doing it, you probably won't do it even though even if you know it's it's good for you. So what I get excited about with compound interest is not only the idea that you know it's gonna grow and it's gonna multiply, but it's this idea. If you compare it, uh, like you compare the first year of compound interest versus, let's say, the 15th year. And and so I use the example of, let's say, Warren Buffett. He was able to return, you know, depending on what time period you talk about, 20, 25 percent, say you call it even 20 percent a year. So if you're taking one hundred dollars and you make 20 percent on that the first year, it's only twenty dollars that you made. It's only one hundred and twenty dollars. Uh, as that grows and it compounds, now you're going to have, instead of compound interest on the $100, you're having it on $120. So now that's like $24 instead of $20. So an extra $4 because you're getting compounding on not only the original investment, but the original investment plus some income. And so that grows and grows and grows. And then I showed you know, what if it got up from a hundred dollars? Now you're at a thousand dollars, and you're continuing this compounding. Well, now what's twenty percent of a thousand dollars? That's two hundred dollars. Now I can get excited because originally we were talking about making like twenty bucks in one year. Now we're talking about making two hundred dollars in one year, and I started with a hundred. So I think when you kind of zoom out and and you try to really think about what does those what do those percentages mean as it grows over time. That's how you get excited about stocks that might pay a three percent dividend, a four percent dividend. And and you'll see it compound and, and you'll see it grow. And if you know how to do the right calculations, you'll you can see it happen kind of quickly. So I have a stock as an example. Uh it's called Cisco. And um it's not really a, a buy recommendation now because it's done so well ever since I bought it. But I'm sure everybody knows what Cisco is or Tech company, they're they're in the networking space. I think it has something to do with Wi-Fi. But what I saw was a stock at a great price with a high yield and all these great financial characteristics, and so I bought it. and And I've been tracking what's the yield on that original investment, and I'm above six percent on that yield on cost within just a few years. So, you know, I was talking about that twenty percent number just a second ago. Now we're talking about. in one year, uh, which started at 3%. And so, you know, if we're going to fast forward five or 10 years, we could be talking about, you know, 20% of a lot, 50% of a lot rather than just 3% of a little. So I hope by putting some like concrete numbers on there, you can start to really understand why compound interest is so powerful. And When you understand and and when you get excited about it, then that's when you have the patience to buy and hold these types of stocks. That's when you go out and seek them. And that's when you put a rule like this as your number two, almost as important as the number one. Make sure you're getting that drip. And I will say that time and time again.
0: Perfect. Well said. All right. Do you want to do three? Sure. Uh, must be significantly cheaper than 52 week high shows room to grow and increases the chance that I'm buying at a bargain. Ideally the current dip in price is temporary. I would definitely agree with this. This is something that is, doesn't get talked about a lot, but is a great thing to look for when you're looking at, the company and trying to decide whether the intrinsic value calculations you've come up with are in the ballpark. And if you look at their 52 week high and low, you can see kind of where it is sitting in that realm. So if it's like two or $3 off of its 52 week high, then maybe you might want to wait on the company. But if it's closer to the low of the 52-week low, then that may be a great chance for you to buy in at a steal, uh, depending on what's going on with the company and the, all the other things that could be going on with it. And that's a great way to find something that may be beaten down in that curtain, curtain uh, portion of the market for whatever reason at that time.
2: I feel like picking a fight you- today, so I'm going to take the opposite stance. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I and I would take it even if I wasn't in a fighting mood today. <laughs> so, you use the word must and that's a very dangerous word if it's not a real must have. So, I don't I definitely don't agree that it must be cheaper than your 52 week high. You have to consider a stock can still be cheap even as it's growing. So, especially when you have stocks that are in these businesses where where they're really doing a great job at growing the bottom line, growing the top line, having that that growth that's going to hopefully lead to the dividend growth that I've been talking about with the drip. Then, you know, you could get into a situation where a stock is at its 52-week high and it can continue to to go that way for quite a while. I've had so I've had success <laughs> it, it's it's tough, right? Because they say that human psychology is when you have if you, if you win $10 or you lose $10, losing those $10 is going to burn nine times more than actually winning the $10 feels. It, 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 it hurts worse than, than the good part felt. So that's when, when I think about buying at 52-week highs and 52-week lows. I think of like stocks like um, GameStop. You remember that one, Dave? You still have that one? I do. Okay. That one, that one hurt real bad. I'm, yep. That one, I, I pulled the hand off and, and unfortunately I got out and I don't know where, where the price, what the price has done since then, but I, I don't even want to look at the GameStop when I walk by one now.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I looked at it the other day. I think it's around 1173 a share or something like that. It's, it's pretty bad.
2: Okay. So it was like that one. I think Foot Locker was close to its 52 week low. Um, that one actually ended up being a great stock pick, but I timed it wrong. Uh, I chalk it up to, to being more of a, a novice as as far as not understanding completely the, the importance of, of holding longer term. And when I think of some of the 52-week highs I bought, I think of a company like Lamb Research, where that's been one of my best, if not the best performing stock in my portfolio, and it just you look at the financials, and the top line is just this perfect straight line. The earnings are in a perfect straight line and it's all trekking up. And the stock price was going up when I bought it. And you know, it wasn't cheap, cheap, obviously, if it's near its 52-week high. But from a complete picture standpoint, the earnings, the sales, it had um low debt and, and still continues to. It was it was at a reasonable valuation, even though the stock had been climbing, and so I bought into that. And like I said, it, it's been one of my best picks. So I I see the value and I see the the idea behind wanting to to buy a stock that's cheaper than its fifty two week high, especially significantly cheaper, because what you're getting there is an indication that the street is really hating the stock. But I think when you when you mix it in and you, and you make it a requirement. You can find a lot of stocks at great valuations where you don't necessarily need to 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 be buying when, when there's maximum pessimism. you know This tends to happen with stocks where if they have some lawsuit, if they have uh, a change a complete makeover in management, if they have any sort of huge uncertainty factor that's surrounding the stock. That could really be the stock down, and it, it can be it can be like treading in, in really rough waters feels like you're out in the middle of the ocean uh, in a storm on the flip side you can still get stocks where maybe they're in an industry where it's slick cyclically in a, in a not as it's like not a cyclical bull i don't want to call it like a cyclical bear but Maybe maybe the industry as a whole is in this cycle where it's just not loved by Wall Street. At the same time, there's been nothing big as far as news coming out of this company. So it's not trading near 52-week low. Maybe it's not trading near 52-week high. And so you just have kind of this lukewarm situation where it could be a great buy and it could still very well be at a spot where you're getting a nice discount to your intrinsic value. You could be getting a nice discount to your intrinsic value. Like I said, with, with a growth picture where uh, there's so, just so much growth and your valuations are still reasonable and you know, and, and you see it as, as a good deal. So I, I don't agree with this one. I think it's one, maybe you might consider scratching out. <clears throat> maybe you change the wording to, to, I would prefer it to be cheaper than a 52-week high, but if it's not, that's not like a red flag for me. So those are my thoughts. And I guess I talked long enough where you don't have time to rebuttal something I said 10 minutes ago. So I think that's a great debate strategy. (laughs) It certainly
0: is. All right, so (laughs) moving on on to the next question uh, or the next uh, by rule. Andrew, why don't you go ahead and read that one? Okay, so he says
2: if buying more it must be cheaper than current cost basis. What this does is reduces cost basis, making it more likely that I'm getting a good deal. To make it simple, uh, in simple terms, it'd be like buying a stock at 100. If it goes up to 105, I'm not going to add more because it needs to be cheaper than what I paid. So he's saying I would want it to be like at 95 or 94. And by doing it that way, he's he's trying to ensure that he's he's picking up a stock at a good deal. I'm curious to to hear what you how you feel about this one, because I feel like it could go either way.
0: Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Uh, I could go either way. I probably am not going to be with this one. I probably would not be hard and fast on this simply for the fact if I'm buying a really good company and I feel like, Let's say you used a hundred dollar mark. Let's say that I feel like the company is really worth 200. If the next time I have an opportunity to buy it, it's 105 versus 100 I first bought it at, I'm still going to pull the trigger on it because I'm still buying it at a discount for me. And I think, you know, money invested in the market for the long term is better served than sitting in my checking account or savings account. And so that's where I would rather it be. And again, if I feel like the company is still a value and I'm still getting a deal on it, then I'm still going to pull the trigger, even if it's not less than the current price that I bought it at. So if I bought it at hundred and it goes up to 105, 110, even 120, depending on what I feel like the company is worth, I'm still, you know, if I'm still getting, feeling like I'm still getting a margin of safety on what I'm buying and I still really feel like the company is, you know, a good investment, I'm still going to pull the trigger on it. Your, What are your thoughts? Well, I a
2: hundred percent agree. You have to remember this is one of the common sayings uh, on wall street they say Wall Street doesn't care or doesn't remember where or when you invested. So a lot of people kind of use this idea where, Oh, well I'm going to get out when I, when I double my money or kind of like this. Well, I don't want to buy more than what I bought in originally. The, 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 the prices are going to flow regardless. And so by, putting these strict rules all you're doing is constraining yourself and and making yourself more vulnerable to the way the market can move up or down what you're doing i mean you have to consider it's just like stocks can be undervalued for a long time and this can happen for years so just because you bought last month and it went up a couple percentage points like you said dave that doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's not you know that that's deal. Yeah, or it's like close the gap for your intrinsic value. That's just not the case anymore. You know that that's that's I, it's not a, a good way to look at it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, I would agree with that. Okay. okay, moving on. Moving on to the next one. Uh, if buying more. Favor smaller positions over, over those that already dominate large fractions of the portfolio. Try to keep them all in the same five percent range. Diversification. What are your thoughts, Andrew?
2: Yeah, I agree in the sense that. So I'll, I'll try to be practical rather than theoretical here again with an example, because this is like in the this is like a decision making process I have, and have had for the past several months with my e-letter, with the real money portfolio. So I have some stocks where the position size is 10 to 15 to 20%. So I look at those and those obviously dominate large portions of the portfolio. And if it's a toss up between maybe one of those and then I have another opportunity that's much smaller, if I look at those stocks and I see them as evenly desirable, then yes, I will pick the one that is a smaller range. I won't, however, I won't pick a stock I like less just because it's a smaller part of my portfolio just to fit this. But the only kind of uh, exclusion to that rule would be I'm going to set like uh, some sort of a max position size that I'd be comfortable with. And it's not something that I'm setting as as a hard and fast rule, but it's something where I'm taking it case by case and and seeing how confident I am in a particular investment and how much do I have available and how much do I want to put towards it. I haven't to this date gone over like 25% of my portfolio in any one stock pick. I'm not sure if it's even gotten over or above 20%. But that's something where okay, if if I if I love a stock, you know, and I love this other stock, one's bigger, one's smaller. Maybe I love the bigger one even more than the smaller one, but if it's if that bigger one is is like a, a ridiculous like twenty percent already of my portfolio, then maybe I go to the less desirable one just because twenty percent is already a lot, and I feel like that's the upper range of where I want to be. So in that case, I would really go to a less desirable stock because it's smaller. But I think in any other case, you want to go where
0: the opportunity seems to be the best. And I I agree with a lot of the things you're saying but I want to throw something out there for you to to kind of contemplate and and tell our listeners what your thoughts are. So at, in the evolution of your portfolio as you're going towards your ultimate goal of retiring someday, you're you're starting with, you know, a a group of around 20 stocks, give or take. Sometimes it may be a little less, sometimes it's going to be 20, it just kind of depends on what's going on in the market, right? So as your portfolio expands and grows and grows and grows, are you, do you envision at at some point twenty years down the road where you have to start trimming the amount of positions you have because some of these other bigger positions have moved into larger portions of the of the portfolio? Do you follow what I am saying?
2: I I think I know where you are going with it, but so you are saying uh, why would I trim?
0: Well, I am guess I, I guess can to kind of play devil's advocate. I'm I'm thinking about somebody like like Uncle Warren or Charlie or Monish Prabhai. Some of these guys that have smaller portfolios. I know Buffett has more than 25, but or 20, but uh, Munger only has four in his portfolio, and Monish Prabha right now has two, and yeah. so th- those are quite a bit smaller than 20. And so I guess my th- I, I guess what I'm wondering is is that as some of your dividend fortresses start to you know take up a bigger portion of your portfolio, do you ever envision you cutting back on <clears throat> the amount of companies that you invest in and putting more of your resources into some of those as you get farther into your investing portfolio just because of the way that those are going to compound larger? amounts because you have more money invested in them now 20 years from now you're going to have even more invested in them just by the sheer fact of compounding do you understand i mean does that make sense
2: yeah okay when you when you mentioned the larger compounding hi you took my lesson from earlier that's perfect (laughs) yeah no i get i get what you're saying now okay so would i trim positions yes i already have or that i am adding to or both
0: well, I guess a little bit of both. So, I mean, how do you see, you know, as, 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 you know, we focus a lot on people that are just starting out and beginners and whatnot. But let's say we have people that are listening to us that are in the 20, 25 year, you know, stretch, not stretch run, but, you know, they're about halfway to where they want to be. What, are, what are your thoughts on how they handle that? If, You know, I'm just going to throw out a company. Let's say you have Johnson & Johnson as one of your big holdings in your portfolio. And it's obviously a a dividend aristocrat. It's, you know, paying, you know, a great dividend. It's been doing it for, you know, a thousand years and it's not going to stop. But that's, you know, that's going to be a big compounding factor in your portfolio. And can you really, I mean, the only way to keep that at 20% is you'd have to sell shares, to trim that down that amount because Uh-oh. it's going to build it 's going to build up and build up and build up kind of what 's happened with with buffett I mean when you look at you know the largest portion of his portfolio it 's really taking up by three or four companies wells fargo coca cola american express and everything else is minuscule i mean he's he's put a big big chunk of dough into apple recently but You know, other than that, it's they're all smaller portions. Even Kraft Heinz, which he bought the company, you know, a few years ago, is really position size in his portfolio is kind of smaller. And so, you know, he's off. What he's fifty-five years into this journey, so it's you know not not apples to apples. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that you know, as you grow your portfolio, this five percent range that he's talking about, I don't think is feasible what are your thoughts
1: hey you what's the best way to get started in the market download andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com you won't regret it
2: yeah i i would not trim just because it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so i I get what you're saying where some of them are going to be so small where it's like, okay, well, do I just let these kind of fall off, right? Just to to right. get closer, some other ones closer to a five percent range. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think that's the ideal. That would be that would be a first world problem, right? To yes, it would. Stock that's just doing so well that it's like, well, do I want to trim it? And I think I think the answer is simple. You you wouldn't want to. It's like you've. That's the whole goal of stock market investing is finding this company that's. Compounding at such a higher rate that we're talking about dividends that can sustain you, dividends that you can, you can you can throw back and and they keep throwing you back more dividends. So yeah, I I wouldn't trim in that situation. I, I mean, unless maybe I felt the eva- the valuation was absurd. Where it's like, okay, right. this is like, there's no way that this valuation is sustainable. You know, we're talking about like right. a PE of a hundred or something. But if right. if the PE is okay, we're at a 25 or 30 PE. It's not cheap, but it's in a reasonable range, and it's spitting out these dividends, and the company is continuing to grow and compound their own earnings. Well, then yeah, I, I feel like it'd be dumb to. To to sell it just to tr- just to to get back down, and so yeah, now I guess you're talking about a new ball game of position sizing, which I haven't really even considered. And mm-hmm. so, I guess how would that change the rest of the position sizing is a good
0: question too. Yeah, yep, I think, and that's you know, as as you get older, that's something you're going to have to think about. You know, you're you got a long you got longer to run than I do, so <clears throat> that'll be something that you and the listeners will have to think about and and investigate as you guys get older in your investing career, for sure.
2: Yeah, it's like, what should we do with this pile of cash? Hmm. <laughs> poor,
0: poor Buffett, he has that problem every day. It's like... Yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. All right, so moving on, we got uh, next question, or next uh, rule. Uh, avoid investing in more than 20 positions. Instead, increase smaller existing positions that meet these requirements. Avoid over-diversification.
2: I, I like, yeah, I like the wording here. He says avoid, but he doesn't say must or must not. So, uh, yeah, you, you want to try to avoid, but it's okay if you go over 20, um, try to get around the 5% range. But like we talked about before, there's always exceptions and, and lots of different discussions behind that. But yeah, as a
0: general rule, I like it. Yeah, I do too. I definitely do. And, you know, as you get older and you, or you find, you know, those one or two companies that are really going to, Take you places, then obviously you can adjust things as you go along for sure. But it, yeah, the just the general rule is, especially starting out, that's a that's a great rule to to follow. All right, moving on. Must be an American company, patriotic, but also reduces fear of dishonesty. Yes, agree, agree, agree. Yeah, agree. Yep, that's that's pretty easy. I've looked. I have to be honest with you. I have looked at some foreign companies uh from time to time how dare Uh, you are you cheating on us (laughs) no i'm not cheating but you know i'm just exploring (laughs) i'm just exploring (laughs) just uh you know i'm i'm curious i'm a curious person (laughs) i like to know stuff and so i like to i like to look at things and see what i can figure out and yeah it's just trying to investigate some of those beyond my skill set so i was like yeah okay maybe not
2: what what, what didn't you all learn right about?
0: um they were well f- for example I, you know of course i was this will segue nicely into our next buy rule uh, i was looking at a few banks uh, from overseas and trying to first of all they were all in um, euros so that made it a little more challenging because i was having to convert everything to dollars so i could kind of get my brain around it and just the sheer fact of how they, you know, do their financial reports over there are it's just different. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just different and it's harder to harder to read. And I, I, in the back of my head, the whole time I had this, there's nobody auditing these, there's nobody making sure that this is honest kind of thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they were wrong or that there was any dis, in, intentional dishonesty, but I did, I can't. I admit that it was in the back of my head while I was reading them. It just made me uncomfortable. So, yeah.
2: I was going to make a joke like, oh, well, what, did they put the financial figures on the wrong side of the road kind of a thing?
1: <laughs> I actually looked no. at it.
2: I looked at a financial statement for a Chinese stock and that's exactly what they did. <laughs> I was like, wait, no. I feel like I'm reading this thing back. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> like the numbers wait, just went <laughs> a different way. Yeah, it was strange.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just, different typical. Experience. All right. Yeah, pretty much. All right. So the, the last buy rule we have is avoid finance, banking, rental property, car manufacturers, and insurance. Uh, producers and sellers of auto parts and medicines are fine. This rule is to avoid businesses prone to dishonesty, calamity, and politics, in my opinion. All right, Andrew. You, do you want to do? Would you like to draw swords on this one first, or would you like me to throw throw out on that?
2: No, I feel I feel like this isn't one that we really. He said it's it's kind of like a personal preference thing. We kind of talked about mm-hmm. that last yep. week, so uh, right. Do you do you? I mean, I love it. Like <laughs> nobody nobody needs to say where we need to put our money. So everybody's got their own thing. You do what you want. I like it. Right. Yep. But I. I'm I mean, not going to follow it, obviously.
0: <laughs> well i'm not, yeah that's that's something that i will you know i will disagree on the finance banking and insurance portion of that comment rental, rental property and car manufacturers i'm kind of you know whatever but yeah the other three are definitely the things that i will definitely take a swing at for sure so but like you said you know he he does him and if that's what makes him comfortable then that's really what it comes down to i think the underlying theme behind this rule is he's trying to stay within his circle of competence, which I think is very wise. Yeah, very true. That's a good point.
2: So those are some great rules. I just want to add this little tidbit before we sign off. Um, Daniel also mentioned how he uses spread So he's using the VTI, obviously, the, the um, value trap indicator that I use anytime I buy, a sell, buy or sell a stock. Uh, it's a f- easy formula. You can find out more on my website or in the email list. But basically what he said he does is he updates the annual report data every time there's a new 10K, and then he has his spreadsheet to recalculate the share price, which he says he regularly updates. So if that makes sense, um, if I can make it sound simpler, basically... Everything, earnings, assets, cash, that's all, it's just all static, right? It's just once a year, it changes. So he only needs to update that once a year. The only other thing that's going to change is the stock price It's going to move every day, right? So he has it set up to kind of auto-calculate and he can update quickly with a new stock price, which will, which will calculate a new price-to-earnings ratio, a new price-to-sales ratio, which gives a new uh, VTI value every time there's a new stock price uh, thing. And and so I wanted to share that actually that's exactly what I use too. And I, I haven't talked about it. I don't think on the podcast yet, but I, I basically took the VTI spreadsheet. I converted it to a Google sheet. And so there's actually a way on Google sheets where you can have the, the Google sheet pull up um, the exact share price. So it, it calculate it like, it updates it in real time. So you don't have to manually put it in. It, it somehow grabs the information from Google Finance. And so every time I open up these spreadsheets and I have them set up for every stock I own, number one, it's it's updating the, the share price immediately when I open that spreadsheet. And then it's updating every VTI. So it's kind of like this complex network I've set up through my Google Drive uh, of all these spreadsheets. But basically... I have updating VTIs for every stock I own, every stock I'm looking at with the watch list. And I have it populated on the central spreadsheet where you can see it update in real time as the stock prices move. So that can be a very, very valuable tool if you have some sort of um, prowess, I guess, is maybe is the right word, where, where you kind of know how to navigate these spreadsheets and <clears throat> can figure out how to do the Google Sheet thing. And it's really, really cool. I think it saves a lot of time and it helps you to process and, and glance at a lot of stocks and and save yourself a lot of time. It, it, you can't ever outsource like the big decision-making process, but you can uh, use automation for things like that. And, and like I said, it can be really cool and you don't have to punch into a spreadsheet every two seconds whenever you want to make an update. So I like it a lot and I think people should
0: try to do it if,
2: if that's up their alley.
0: That sounds awesome. Yeah, that uh, that would be fantastic. That is not up my alley. I'd have to have you help me with that.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll charge you 500 an hour. So nope. We can talk off okay.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll have my people get back to your people on that. <laughs>
2: right. I know what that means.
0: <laughs> Big fat no. All right. So... All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for tonight. I'd like to thank Daniel for sending in his email. Those were some fantastic rules, and I really enjoyed discussing them, as I know Andrew did. He felt a little bit uh, feisty tonight, so we had some good discussion this evening. Uh, he had some great ideas on these by rules, and if you have any other questions about this, we have those two episodes we mentioned earlier, episode 32 and episode 88. You can go back and listen to those in the archives, and they can help you get a little better wrap an idea around your head with buy rules. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. Don't forget to invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on safety.
1: We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today